Blood Brothers Podcast. Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and yes, the foes out there. Welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Didi Hussein. Before I introduce today's esteemed and erudite guest who's joining us all the way from Dallas in United States, I want to remind all our avid listeners and followers and viewers to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel and to find us on all the usual audio podcast platforms. Today's guest, he is a established and celebrated historian, a theologian, an academic, uh, one of the most influential figures in the Muslim da'wah scene in the Western world. He is the resident scholar of an epic mosque, EPIC being uh, the acronym for the East Plano Islamic Center in Dallas, and he is the Dean of the Islamic Seminary of America, and that is none other than Sheikh Dr. Yasser Qadi. Sheikh, Salaam Alaikum. Wa Alaikum Assalam wa Rahmatullahi wa Barakatuh. I ask Allah Azza wa Jal that all of these titles actually mean something on the Day of Judgment, and in this world, these are simply words that you say. Most important is our actions and ikhlas. And every time somebody introduces with all of these lengthy titles, we have to be very clear here that these titles mean nothing on the Day of Judgment. May Allah Azza wa Jal grant us all ikhlas and taqwa. So this, uh, it was, I, I don't like these long titles, but anyway, inshallah, let's, uh, I hope you're doing well, Dili. I think we have met once, I think, in the past. We have, we have, we have met very briefly once in the past. You have been interviewed by my colleague, uh, Roshan Saleh. Many, many years ago for Press TV. Colleague, I didn't know that. Okay, mashallah. Yes, yes, he is indeed. And of course, we have many mutual brothers between us. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Sheikh, we've got a lot to cover today. A lot of ground to cover. Um, But what I tend to do with guests who happen to be people of knowledge, I like to warm up the session with some quickfire questions, right? Um, I want you to think of a boat journey that you're going on. Seven days on a boat journey. And you have to... Take one of the two individuals with you on this journey Now some of these figures are historical They have passed Some are still alive Um, Some of the answers I think I'm expecting I think I guessed right But others I'll be interested to know who you would choose And you do have the opportunity to just briefly elaborate On some of the choices if you feel the need to You ready? Okay Bismillah Okay Seven days boat journey Ten companions Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal or Imam Shafi. Um, you're gonna get me oh, into God. trouble, bro. <laughs> come on now, come on. And you can't say both. You can't say neither. It has to be one of the two, Sheikh. Come on. It's a seven-day journey. You need to spend seven days with them. Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, because I would want to narrate a hadith to him and just get the barakah of listening and narrating a hadith. Throughout your throughout your adult life and your journey in pursuit of knowledge. You have generally, if I'm correct, please correct me if I'm not, identified as a, a Hanbalite in most affairs? Yes, and that's why I wanted to make the clarification. It's not because of the fiqh issue. If it was for the fiqh issue, frankly, I would have chosen Imam al-Shafi'i. But okay. simply to get the barakah of the ahadith of the Prophet Wasallam, I would have chosen so, Imam Ahmed so. for this hypothetical theoretical journey. <laughs> okay. Obviously, I know, uh, you know, when it comes to your lectures, me personally, I, 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 I very much enjoy your historical lectures. MashaAllah, tabarakallah. So I have to throw in some historical figures there as well. If you had to take one of the Khulafa, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz or Harun al-Rashid? Frankly, I would choose Harun al-Rashid simply because the fact that he was at a later stage uh, means that he was exposed to more types of um, 
interactions with other civilizations and had to make uh, more difficult decisions. Uh, in terms of piety, of course, Umar al Aziz would be the ideal in between those two, but uh, I would be more, my curiosity would be piqued by the circumstances of the early Abbasids, so I would choose Harun al Rashid. Salahuddin al Ayyubi or Alp Arslan? Again, I'm going to be go off on a limb here. Um, because we don't know that much about Al-Parsalan as compared to Salahuddin, I personally would have chosen, chosen Al-Parsalan because, of course, again, in terms of grandiose and whatnot, what Salahuddin accomplished cannot be compared, but Al-Parsalan is a, a unique individual with a very exotic background, right? Salahuddin Ayyubi is mainstream, Kurdish, Arab, whatnot. <coughs> Al-Parsalan is coming from the far left and just making an impact. <laughs> so me personally, yeah, I would have chosen Al-Parsalan. I've never thought about these questions. This is intriguing. Okay. okay. Um, I'm sure this is one that you've had before. Uh, or one maybe you have even thought about in terms of your study periods. Imam Ghazali or Sheikh Ibn Taymiyyah? So obviously, um, there's no question that my personal association would want me to be with Ibn Taymiyyah if that's the only uh, opportunity that I have. There's no question. I mean, I would love to pick Imam Al-Ghazali's brain. But uh, you can't compare like um, I, uh, the 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 tarbiyah that I've had for the last twenty five years. Obviously, Ibn Taymiyyah, I still view him, despite all what my critics say, I still view him as being the Sheikhul Islam and the person that I ascribe to the most overall. My ideology is Taymiyyah, so how can I possibly give it the opportunity to be with uh, you know the legend himself? Okay, um, Sultan Fatih or Sultan Aurangzeb. Oh, come on, Aurangzeb, man. I, come on, I'm Desi by blood, you know? Like, there's just uh, whatever Fatih has done, but to yeah. meet uh, <laughs> uh, 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 one of the sultans of the uh, Mughal Empire, and um, yeah, definitely, I mean, that's a no-brainer for me. Okay. Uh, Umar Mukhtar or Imam Shamil? Hmm, that's a, that's a good one. That's a good one. We're getting closer to our time. Either either one. Wallahi, there's no... You have to choose one. Choose one. You have to choose one. Yeah, I mean, I would personally Umar al-Mukhtar simply because, okay, so again, both are very similar, but because Umar al-Mukhtar was against the Europeans and because we are more connected to Europe and Europeans, I would feel more at home listening to his stories and benefiting from him. Obviously, you know, Imam Shamil was against the Russians and whatnot, and that's a different civilization that we, me and you and others haven't directly interacted with to the level that we've interacted with Europeans. So very, very bizarre point, but I would choose somebody that, Whose stories I could relate to more if you get my drift. Khair, okay. Uh, Jamal al Din Afghani or Muhammad Abdul? I mean, Afghani, I don't really, I don't think there's much that I would have benefited uh, you know, from him. I, I think he's a very interesting character to study, but I have little desire. Even Abdul, I mean, the both of them are interesting. I don't really, I don't disrespect them, but I don't have the level of respect I would do for the next generation. Uh, um, you know, so. Uh, obviously, Rashid Rida is somebody that I actually connect with a lot personally. So I really, so because of that, Abdu had a more impact on Rida than Afghani. So I would choose Abdu for that reason. But oh. yeah, not that much of a difference. Okay, then in that case, Rashid Rida or Abu Ala Al Maududi. Um, again, Rashid Rida is a bit more exotic for me. He's a generation before um, uh, Maududi. Uh, Maududi, actually, I have a personal connection. My father was, you know, met him a number of times and was his part of the organization. So my father was a part of um, Jamaat in the 50s in Pakistan. Okay. okay. And so, and I've met many of his students, his sons. I know them personally. So 
he's not as exotic of a figure for me as Rashid Rida. So I'd have to choose Rashid Rida for that reason. Also, okay. with my utmost respect to Maududi, great person, but Rashid Rida was an allama. Yani he had studied, uh, whereas, you know, Maududi, may Allah have mercy and bless him and whatnot, he, he was self-taught. There's a big, big difference between the two. Okay. Um, Abdullah Azam or Mullah Omar? Azam without a doubt. Azam okay. without a doubt. He is a legend. Okay. Bringing it very closer to home and closer to our time. Um, Imam Omar, Sulaiman, or our Ustad Abu Isi Adamatullah. Ah, you're going to get me into trouble, bro. You know, in America, we have the Constitution and there's something called the Fifth Amendment, right? <coughs> The Fifth Amendment means you don't have to incriminate yourself. So I'm going to call the uh, Fifth over here and I'm going to say I refuse my constitutional rights. The okay. both of them are Habib and dear friends. And if I were to choose the one over the other, I'm never going to hear the end of it as long as I live. So I'm going to choose my constitutional Fifth Amendment and zip it. Okay. So then in that case, since you've taken the Fifth, you have to allow me to ask you a sub-question in that regard. Which of, which of our two dearest Mashaikh of the two tend to hold you to account more with regards to your public works? Uh, that's something that is separate from the first question. And uh, it is Abu Isa for one simple reason, that I've known him for way longer. Okay. Um, uh, I'm close friends with both, but I've known Abu Isa while we were both students. When he was in Mauritania and I was in Medina, he would come visit, you know, uh, and uh, in Egypt as well. Um, and so we've known each other since we were students of knowledge. I mean, it's been uh, 25 years, like a long uh-huh. time known each other, you know, whereas uh, Imam Umar Suleiman, I've only, you know, we got to, I mean, he's obviously much younger than the both of us. He's a decade or so, decade uh, or so younger. And he, we only got to know each other after I had returned from Medina and we're both active in da'wah. So that level has not been established for that reason. But uh, he is a good friend of mine. So I will, I will not let the viewers and listeners to decide based on the fifth and on that explanation who you might, if it was a life and death situation. Last but not least, your 10th companion, who would you take? Mufti Taqi Usmani or Sheikh Sheikh Al-Qardawi? I wish you had uh, added one more person, (laughs) the one that I consider my main mentor that is still alive, that is Sheikh Salman Al-Awdha, but you didn't bring him in, may Allah facilitate his release. Um, Amin. You know, I'd have to say Sheikh Qardawi simply because he's a generation older than Mufti Taqi. And so there's a lot more to benefit from it. Otherwise, they're both at a, a caliber that I respect and admire. But simply because Sheikh Qardawi is 30 years older, he would automatically get the respect uh, that um, that age brings about. Okay. Jazakumullah khair. How did you find uh, picking your guests for this uh, hypothetical uh, boat journey? I've never, I've never had this, uh, this um, uh, uh, break, uh, icebreaker done to me. So... Interesting. Okay. It's an interesting exercise, and uh, inshallah, I, I benefit it. And inshallah, I'm going to use it in a future, maybe in a future Q&A that I do. I'll also uh, take this copyrighted version of an icebreaker and then choose figures that are even more controversial, if you like. You tried to choose some. Yeah. Alhamdulillah, you didn't go too far. Yeah. <laughs> Alhamdulillah, Sheikh. Listen, let's kick today's podcast off with a an area of conversation which you have discussed in great detail previously. In previous podcasts, like uh, our season one partners, the Mad Mamluks, uh, when you did the most recent episode with them, I believe it was last year at some point, uh, and that's your journey through what is generally understood to be a Salafia or, or the or, or, or the Salafist movement or Najdi Dawah. I know there's various words and terminologies, and I also acknowledge that it's a spectrum, and it would be unfair to kind of uh, compartmentalize 
those labels to a spectrum of different groups uh, and views and so forth. But it is an area which you've discussed in in great detail. Um, why would you say that this area of conversation is something that you have chosen uh, to speak quite openly about of late in recent years? Two reasons. Number one, um, I feel that I owe it to my students whom I taught uh, ideas and concepts that I now uh, no longer subscribe to, that I explain to them why I have changed my mind, and I leave it to them whether they want to continue with the ideas I taught them or they want to follow the new positions that I have. It's up to them. Um, uh, so I feel that there's a lot of conversations taking place, and it's my haq upon my students uh, to clarify to them because I'm the one who introduced uh, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands via my books and lectures. And, you know, the, the first detailed sharh of Kitab al-Tawheed in English, I did it back in 1995-96, only mm -hmm. on audio. It's not yeah. even on video. Mm -hmm. You know, kashf shubuhat I mean, t teaching uh, what I taught for, you know, my theology classes for a solid 15 years, basically, from 1995-96, Kitab al-Tawheed, you know, all the way uh, to around 20, 2010 or so is when I really, like, you know, uh, rethought, uh, you know, certain things and whatnot. So over this entire time frame, uh, I have been teaching um, tens of thousands of students online, in person, via publications. And then I have slightly modified. I'm not like rejecting 99% of what I was upon. It's just like certain, you know, very controversial issues, but still important ones I've modified. And I feel that that wasn't correct what I taught them. So it's my responsibility to explain and clarify. It's up to those who took from me in that phase, whether they want to take this phase or not. It's not a big deal, whichever one they choose. That's the first reason. Uh, the second reason is that I feel that um, certain concepts, and it, it's related to the first one, certain concepts that I used to teach and that are mainstream in those segments of the Najdi Da'wah um, are, to put this gently, detrimental for Muslim unity. And in order for Muslim unity to be achieved, these types of questions need to be asked and answered head on, regardless of my own personal history, right? Okay. Regardless of me as Yasser Qadi in 1995 and, and 2000, ever. These are issues that, in my humble opinion, people who subscribe to them with certain understandings will problematize forming alliances with other Muslims. Okay. At a time frame when we most need those alliances, at a time frame where Muslim unity is of paramount importance, there are certain theological questions that are going to impede and hamper such unity. And if you subscribe to those particular understandings of Islam, then the logical consequence is that you are not going to prioritize any type of bond with your fellow Muslims whom you feel are committing acts of shirk or major bid'ah or kufr or whatnot. Mm. So for the sake of the problems that we're facing as an ummah, and I firmly believe one of the ways, and this is the Quranic way as well, that وَلَا تَنَازَعُوا فَتَفْشَلُوا Right? يَدُ اللَّهِ عَلَى الْجَمَاعَةِ Right? The whole point of coming together. كُونُوا عِبَادَ اللَّهِ إِخْوَانَ As the Prophet said, Giving, uh, given the fact that we're facing so many controversies and issues and political problems across the globe, I really feel passionately that such misunderstandings need to be corrected or at least clarified because some people are never going to change their mind. That's that's up to them. But those that are interested should hear. And as somebody who's been through the process and who knows what needs to be said and how it needs to be said, because I've, I've experienced it myself, 
I feel that there is a type of obligation on me to at least attempt in a gentle manner, in a reasonable manner, in a manner that understands the mentality of people of a certain mindset because I was one of them and I respect that and I respect my teachers. Even as I have gently moved on, I've never ever criticized uh, my alma mater or my mashayikh or anything of this nature. But yes, I have certain positions that I have mm. moved on from and I think that they should be clarified for the sake of uh, betterment of the ummah. So these are the two main reasons that I think that it is important that uh, such conversations take place. Uh, upon, I want to ask you your personal feelings, your inner thoughts. Um, I don't want to rehash or regurgitate or re go over some of the conversations that you've already had on various platforms. Is there a feeling of guilt that you've had during your journey of change and, and, and reformation in certain aspects? And we're talking about Islamic reformation, if our listeners and viewers are not talking about secular liberal reformation, reformation but the reformation of a character of someone who's gone for a journey of pursuing knowledge. Have you ever felt guilty? about the hundreds and thousands of prospective students that you may have taught and may no, have had. No, no, that's not the right word. Responsibility is the word, not guilt. The okay. reason why I don't feel guilty is because I didn't do a crime. I didn't do anything wrong. Uh, one thing that I seek Allah's refuge from, and inshallah I say this with humility without any boastfulness, one thing that I feel, inshallah ta'ala, ask Allah that it is true what I say. I have always taught Islam the way that I believe that it should be taught, not for public pandering, not for political correctness, not for gaining popularity or votes. Whatever I said about Islam, about any fatwa, about any position that I gave, I genuinely believed at that phase of my life that this was the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because inshallah ta'ala, I hope this is, I hope, I'm not trying to, I hope it's, it's, it's in me. I believe that I have to answer to Allah for what I've said. And so whatever I say about the deen has to be done with a clean conscience. So at any phase of my life, whenever I taught whatever I did, I did so believing it to be the truth. And Allah Azza wa Jal will judge people based upon their niyyat. So when I taught Kitab al-Tawheed, I genuinely believed that that version of Islam was the correct version. And my mashayikh and my teachers and everything is an entire system that I'm from. It's not, I'm the one, who, I'm not the one who invented it. I'm not the one who produced this. I'm a product of a certain movement. And mm -hmm. I basically championed that movement, basing my knowledge on the knowledge of people far more pious than me and far more knowledgeable than me, right? And I'm a mere student of knowledge from their teachings. So I taught in good conscience. Then it became clear to me that certain aspects, and again, people read in too much. I have never rejected the entirety of the Athari creator. So that's not, it's ridiculous. I am overall still Taymiyyan and still Athari and whatnot. It's just certain issues, especially of the Najdi da'wah, I feel are, are you know problematic. And I say this with gentleness. I mean, I, I don't want to use any harsh adjectives. I mean, my mashayikh are good people, but mm. so are mashayikh of other strands of Islam as well. So are the Ubandis and so are the, the ulama of, of you know Jazair and Morocco and the ulama of Habaib of Yemen. They're all good people. You cannot base the soundness of a creed based upon the piety of the mashayikh who teach it. If we were to do that, then the, the bulk <laughs> of the Sunni ummah, alhamdulillah, is upon piety and taqwa. Right, so we need to move beyond emotionalism. And uh, well, I'm I'm start straying from your question. Do I feel guilty? No. Well, the word never even crossed my mind. The word is responsibility. That's what I feel. Responsib responsibility because I was one of the primary figures who introduced this understanding of 
you know, uh, a soft version of the Salafi da'wah, the Najdi da'wah, you know, throughout the late 90s and early 2000s with all of my books and teachings and whatnot, I was one of the main figures of this da'wah for such a long period of time. So the fact that I now disagree with some aspects of it, I feel there's a responsibility on me to clarify and explain. But no, there's not any, I've never felt guilt because guilt means that I've done something wrong and I don't feel that I've done anything wrong in this regard. Wallahu alam. So let's pick up on an earlier point that you made. You said that there were specific aspects um, of that da'wah or of that creed uh, which can be problematic and, and, and be you know an obstacle to unity which is something which is paramount in terms of a priority for the ummah right now. So let's just take uh, some anecdotal examples. If we were to look at how um, this... Even I'm uncomfortable with the wording, Sheikh. I swear to God. I, I, whether it's Salafi or Najdi or even Wahhabi, these terms, I personally feel uncomfortable because I know it, it covers such a huge spectrum, but we know what we're talking about when we're talking about a very rigid, non uncompromising interpretation of, let's say, Asma wa Sifat or Tawasul Istighata and these types of topics, which can and are obstacles to Muslim unity, right? So if you're saying, and you've basically said just earlier that, that, some aspects of these creedal points can be an obstacle to unity. So therefore, you know that what you had taught over the period of time, that now there's a sense of responsibility to perhaps give a softer version, an alternative version to remove those obstacles. Would that be then correct? Yes, that is a more accurate way to present it. That's, um, I believe that some of these issues uh, need to be clarified so that Muslims don't view mainstream fellow Muslim movements and strands with the eye of extreme suspicion or hatred or with charges of kufr or shirk or heresy to the point of no cooperation. What I'm trying to do is to bring about a very frank conversation and my claim now is that mainstream Sunnism overall is a movement that we should not problematize the internal strands of. Any mainstream movement that takes the hadith of Jibreel and the six arkan of Iman yeah. as its foundational premises, the rest is then discussed. I'm not saying they're all right. I'm not saying everything is okay and it's, as they say, hunky-dory or sing kumbaya. But I'm saying discussions of intra-Sunni theological dispute should take place amongst the right people with the right frame of mind and with the right language. These types of discussions should never come down to the street level and masjid level and the people that are just living their lives as Muslims. They should not problematize fellow Muslims who have another interpretation that goes back to Ghazali, that goes back to Al-Muhasibi, that goes back to you know so-and-so of great ulama of the past. Let academic discussions remain among academics. So, and I've said this again very clearly, unfortunately, as you know the case, people love to extrapolate or read in. No, I've been very consistent in this message. I am not saying all interpretations are okay. What I'm saying is that we need to understand such discussions should not break the overall unity of the ummah. We need okay. to learn to have these discussions with the right audiences. Never should the average Muslim who is struggling to pray five times a day be taught to hate another Muslim of another firqa who's also struggling to pray five times a day. That is my main issue of contention. And that's why I'm very public about this. When you believe that a certain strand is practicing shirk and kufr, automatically you're not going to want to have anything to do with them. That's the, the net result 
of what you have been taught. Mm -hmm. And that is why I am forced to gently, because I'm not being harsh here, gently bring up these discussions and say, no, it's not shirk and kufr what mainstream movements are doing. You can disagree. I still believe certain aspects are haram. But to say something is haram, at least the person is a Muslim. Whereas when you say it's shirk, well, then it changes everything, doesn't it? So that's why I'm saying these types of discussions need to be had head on. And we need to clarify. And I need to clarify because I have a responsibility. I'm the one having taught <laughs> some of yeah. these aspects. Uh, uh, the fact that, no, it's not, you know, shirk. What, what uh, well, again, to be specific here. So, for example, tawassul, you know, or um, asking. Uh, and I've, we've had a long, I have, uh, you know, lectures. Uh, so anyway, I have to say this, by the way. We're not talking about the actual issues. If you're interested, you can listen to. Uh, number one, the most important is my three-hour lecture on uh, on the Najdi Da'wah, it's called. It's on my YouTube channel. You can listen to that. It's a three-hour-long lecture on the Najdi Da'wah. I've talked a little bit about this as well in my first podcast with uh, the Mad, Mad Mamluks, right? That was, I think, three years ago. A little bit about this as well. Yeah. And then also, uh, uh, Muhammad Hijab interviewed me about my time in Medina. Yeah. And you can listen to that. So these are the three interviews that I would uh, recommend anybody to listen to to get to the core of what we are uh, skirting around in this interview with you. I've already discussed the, 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 the core details in those interviews. So the fact of the matter is, Sheikh, that the reality is that whilst you said that these conversations should take place, there is a place for it in the right environment with the right people and it shouldn't trickle down on a grassroots street masjid level. But the point of the, the truth of the matter is it did, whether it's the uh, Indian subcontinent, whether it be in places like Syria uh, with... Uh, Shaykh Ramadan al-Bouti and others and his contemporaries. It definitely took place in the UK. Everyone knows about the, the noughties, uh, the, 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 the Dao Wars of the 90s in the UK. I'm very sure it did happen also in America. The fact of the matter is that these theological intra-sectarian discussions and debates uh, did take place. Can it ever be contained? No, it can never be contained. The goal is not perfection. It's never going to happen. But the goal is to minimize evil. And if the major du'at and the major preachers and teachers simply change their tune, which has happened in North America since the 90s, so they change their tune and they don't emphasize these intra-sectarian disputes, then inshallah, the bulk of the ummah will be free of them. I'd like to say that America, the, the Muslim scene here, has headed in that direction. Again, I'm a product of the 90s. These sectarian wars you talk about, I was in the thick and thin of them back in the right, 90s. Indeed. Right? I was a part of all of this, and that has what shaped me to understand. I mean, one of the main... So again, let me give an anecdote here. When I returned from Medina in 2005, right? There was no question. I was a card-carrying Najdi, right? I was preaching and teaching Ibn Abdul Wahhab, and I hadn't changed one iota of my belief about the Najdi da'wah. Mm. Uh, 2005-2006, an incident happened in a MSA, it's an ISOC, you call it, yes, MSA, yes, ISOC, yes, yeah. where uh, some of our students of the Al-Maghrib Salafi, uh, you know, version, whatever, and some of Zaytuna, and I'll, I'll mention names here so that people understand, Zaytuna's crowd, which is obviously slightly different, that they had a very big verbal clash, and they decided to split up and form two ISOCs, two MSAs. This oh, was on a university campus, okay? Yeah. And... I knew, but uh, two degrees of separation, I knew the people involved on the our side, and it really hurt me. Like, I realized, bro, that's not, we just, at that stage, I said, we disagree with them, but not to this level. But then I thought to myself, can I blame these two, you know, teenage groups for getting to this level when they're constantly hearing rhetoric from us and from their teachers of this nature? 
Can I really blame them for wanting to just break away thinking that each one is mubtadi' and dal and mudil? Mm. And that's when I reached out to Imam Zayd Shakir. This is early 2006 to Imam Zayd Shakir. And began a series of conversations that eventually led to something. Again, it's gone now in history, but it was called the Pledge of Mutual Respect or something. This is like a, a document that we signed between many of our, uh, uh, you know, preachers and teachers and those of, you know, the uh, Sufi Ash'ari camp at the time, where we basically said, hey, guys, we're not going to prioritize sectarian differences, you know. And at the time, I was a card carrying, like, you know, Najdi through and through. But I realized that we cannot prioritize these differences amongst the masses. And that was simply because of the, the, the environment that I found myself in. To see that people are going to literally break away from one another, form different masajid and form different MSAs based upon Imam Ghazali and Imam Ibn Taymiyyah. No, that's not Islam. But that's what's going to happen when you constantly keep on telling them, oh, you know, these people are dal and mudil and ahl al-bid'ah and the ashar are like this, or they say the hashawi are like this. You have to minimize that rhetoric. I think we both learned from the 90s and then 9-11 and all of the backlash that happened and whatnot. And inshallah, these days, at least in the North American scene, we really don't have a mainstream preacher who is still upon that 90s version. Because we've realized that it doesn't make any sense to be isolationist and to burn all our bridges with one another. No, our what unifies us is far, far more than what splits us apart. And the kalima is the most important thing that unifies us. Even if we disagree about asma'u sifat or we disagree about certain aspects of tasawwuf and whatnot, those disagreements should not lead to the breaking of bonds between the ummah as a whole. So again, this is a personal anecdote that it made me realize I need to think things through. That led to the journey of trying to understand intellectually because, again, you're, I'm jumping the gun here, but I needed to reconcile in my own mind how we can form ties with groups of people that I'm being taught are committing shirk. Mm. You see? My heart is telling me that we need to form bonds for the ummah. And these are people of iman and taqwa. I meet them. I interact with them. And they have great precedents when they quote their fatawa of tawassul, whatever it might be. They have a long list of ulama from Suyuti and from, you know, Ibn Hajar and Nawi. Yes. All of them are allowing this thing, you know. And you know this. I mean, this is well known, right? Yes. And yet, I am being taught that specific aspects of what they're doing is shirk and kufr. Okay? So, how do I reconcile forming bonds with people whom intellectually I'm being told and I believe at that time that this is shirk and that's a, a, a cognitive dissonance you're put in a, a a very awkward situation and this is what forced me to go back and really as I said with an open mind think is it really shirk what my teachers have taught me I'm meeting these Muslims I don't see them as Hindus I don't see them as pagans I see them with their iman their taqwa their tahajjud their dhikr I see them and they genuinely love Allah and his messenger and I see them quoting great ulama far greater than you know uh, uh, many of in our movement for example and yet I'm being taught that this issue can kufr and this is why I needed to really reconcile and as I said it's in my Najdi uh, lecture the three hour long one I went into a very deep dive and a year and a half reading, rethinking critically and whatnot. And then obviously it became clear to me that uh, you can disagree and you can say, yes, they should not be doing that. But it's not uh, shirk whatsoever. The term shirk should never be applied to what mainstream ulama have endorsed throughout Islamic history. That's a very dangerous term. That's a loaded term. Do not use the term shirk or kufr to describe mainstream Sunnism. You can say I disagree, and it is not correct, and it is a stepping stone, I have said this to Shirk, yes, I have said this, calling the dead, 
Wallahi, I, I don't like it at all. And it's something that really we should not open the door to. But what are you going to do? These are Muslims that have great precedents. They have great ulama within our tradition. We're not talking about outside our tradition. And I think you, you as well, didn't you moderate a debate? Yes, yes I did indeed. I heard yeah. about this. Yeah. So you've heard the evidences. It's not as if it's coming out of thin air. Well, it's normative, very much normative. Exactly. Yeah. It is normative. That's the point that our you know, Najdi brethren fail to understand. This You're talking about the Salaf. You find whiffs of this in the first, well, Tawassul, the first three generations, no doubt about it. Imam Ahmad allowed Tawassul according to many of his own students, right? And then you have Ibn Taymiyyah with my utmost love and respect saying it's a bid'ah, okay? Many of the Salaf allowed Tawassul. So, Shari, if I may interject there, yeah, um, because you cited it. So when I chaired that debate on the permissibility of uh, Tawassul Istirad between Sheikh Sahar Rashid, who doesn't identify as a Brarvi, but Hanafi Ash'ari, and then Ustad Abdul Rahman Hassan, who was obviously um, of uh, that persuasion, uh, of the Najdi persuasion. And I recall at the very beginning, uh, Sheikh Sahar, he said that, look, our issue isn't that you believe it's haram. Our issue is that you believe it's shirk. Because essentially what you're doing by extension here, you're, you're, you're making takfir on us, takfir light on us, yeah? You'd can't, you can't open the heart of every single person who visits the grave. You don't know that they're asking the person who's deceased independently to give them X, Y, and Z. So here we are debating, do you believe seeking assistance or aid from the deceased, not independent of Allah, and whatever our argument is, is it shirk or is it haram? And I remember Abdul Rahman Hassan said, it's shirk. He said, and this is why we are here debating. Exactly my point. If you say it is haram, yeah. then you can agree to disagree and maybe even have a heated debate. But in the end, you will part as brothers yeah. because you haven't made takfir or shirk. That's my point here, right? Yeah. If you say it is shirk, which is what the Najdi Da'wa says, you really, you can't form strong alliances with people that you think are basically soft Hindus. I mean, you, how, you, how are you going to do that, you know? And as you're aware, this is what, uh, you know, this is the, what the Nazi Da'wah teaches. And uh, I, I have an anecdote in my, in my lecture, the three hour long one. I even spoke to, um, you know, one of their senior scholars, Bin Bayya, and I said to him, like, how do, you, how do you expect us to reconcile, you know, forming bonds with people that we think they're doing shirk? You know, I asked him this question. You know, this is me in 2005, 2006, problematizing, like, look, what maslaha is there? And this is what the Najdi say. What maslaha is there in forming ties of relationship with people that are not actually Muslims? And they have a valid point from their paradigm. There is no maslaha politically or theologically from forming ties with people that you think are committing shirk and kufr. You understand this point? And that's why, for example, anybody who believes the Prophet is not the final Prophet, you know the group I'm talking of course, about. Of course. I have nothing to do with them. What maslaha is there? What yeah, maslaha is there? there? Nothing. I have nothing to do with them. I don't want to do anything with that movement because I don't view them as being kith and kin to me. Right? They're a different firqa and not not even firqa. Sorry, they're a different deen. They have nothing to do with Islam. 100%. Okay. Now, if you're gonna say mainstream tasawwuf, Ghazalian tasawwuf is kufr and shirk, right? If you're gonna say 90% of the ulama of Yemen and you know Morocco and uh, many uh, Azhar and whatnot are practicing shirk, what are you gonna do to the ummah? And that's why I, I have to say, at least amongst our circles that listen to us, I don't give khutbas about this. My lecture series are not about these issues, but for academic audiences, and even in the library, Chester said, this is an academic talk. If you're interested, you have the background. We need to clarify that this interpretation 
of calling it shirk is a minority one. You can call it haram, and you have giants that have called it haram. Ibn Aqil said it's haram. My argument, and I know this caused a controversy, but I stand by this. It appears very clear to me that Ibn Taymiyyah is also upon this position. And that Ibn Abdul Wahhab misinterpreted Ibn Taymiyyah. And I quoted Ibn Taymiyyah as well. And as I said, further research needs to be done because you do find passages that are ambiguous in nature. So we need to compile all the passages and get a clear cut. But it is very clear to me, at least at this stage, and I'm willing to uh, be corrected or, 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 or sit with specialists. But at this stage, it is clear to me that as a default, Ibn Taymiyyah said it is haram to ask the dead and it could be shirk. And this is the position that I hold. You know, in terms of, <coughs> sorry, um, so in terms of uh, matter, you've you've said that. Look, so someone someone accepts the hadith of Jibreel salam and the six arkan of iman. Does that mean these matters of asma wa sifat and 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 istighata, uh, tawassul, and so forth? Do you believe these to be furu'i matters now, as opposed to very core creedal matters in the past? Uh, me personally, at this stage of the history of the ummah, yes, I do. I do. Okay. At this stage. What I mean by this is that we do need to be contextual. What I mean by this is that I am not damning the past ulama who made this a big issue. Maybe it was for their time and place the right time to discuss this, right? Mm -hmm. But what I am saying is that too many scholars are living in a replicated bubble of their own making. Mm -hmm. Too many scholars make these issues of the past just as important as they were in the past, they're making them now. And that is a mistake because we now have a different set of issues that the past did not have. Never in the history of the Ummah have we faced the type of Ridda uh, uh, going on, the attacks, uh, uh, the agnostic and atheistic, you know, attacks on Islam. Never have our second, third generation, you know, en masse, I would say, having these shubuhat of the validity of our faith as they do now. So rather than bring up controversies about the sifat of Allah Azza wa Jal. Let's talk about the existence of Allah to a group of people that are doubting his existence. Let's talk about proving the prophethood of the Prophet Sallallahu to a group that are wondering should he be followed or not, okay? So the context that we live in brings about a different set of issues. Now, advanced students in Medina and advanced students in, you know, Deoband and advanced students in Al-Azhar, if they want to come together and talk about istawa ala al-arsh and nuzul and whatnot, alhamdulillah, it's a very useful exercise and I'm not against and opposed to that. But they should not translate those academic arguments to their respective masses and cause the people to hate one another, boycott one another because of these controversies. Before we move on to uh, the next uh, topic of discussion, uh, let me posit this to you. Um, would you say that your shift in position, your... I don't want to use the word awakening. I think it's a bit uh, tongue-in-cheek. But, but, but some of the realizations that you had uh, come to, would you say the environment forced you to do this? Or, yes. your, in, or your increased uh, observations and experience with other Muslims? Well, that's the same thing. No, because... Okay, post 9-11, did, did that push you to do it? Because there's a thing in the, there's a thing in the UK here, Sheikh, where... It's, it's like an unspoken thing, but we said, that, look, the, the, the Salafis, he had to tone their stuff down because post 9-11, post 7-7, the, the, the Salafis or the Wahhabis became the target of counter, the CVE operation and, and, and the system. So the environment pushed them to tone down some of the rhetoric. I see what you're saying. No, no, not the environment. The context, again, 
it's not governmental pressure. It's the realization that we don't have the luxury to be so isolationist. The realization that it is nonsensical for 20 Muslims of a particular Salafi persuasion to say, we are the Ghuraba and we are the Ahl al-Haq and we're not going to pray behind anybody else. And this is nonsensical. Now, pre 9-11, you are not forced to think, think through the ramifications of being Ghuraba. Pre 9-11, and you are old enough to remember this, most of our other audience, they wouldn't even know this, but the level of freedoms that we had are unimaginable, you know. Pre 9-11, there was fundraising for the jihad in Bosnia. Uh, exactly. Uh, Azam came to America, by the oh, way. Of course. We talked about Azam yes. came to America under American supervision and fundraised here in America, in Oklahoma and other places, and the government allowed this, you know. It's a different world altogether. So it's not governmental pressure. It's that we were allowed to be blissfully naive. That's really the way I, 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 I view it. We were allowed some naivety in terms of our political and, and theological understandings. Post 9-11, post 7-7, the government backlash, the war in Iraq, the rise of Al-Qaeda, the rise of ISIS, all of this, it's like a punch in the face to us. Like, okay, do you really believe this stuff? And I've said this in the Najdi Da'wah video, the rise of ISIS to me was a huge wake-up call. Because as an academic who taught jihadist movements in my uh, university, I taught at university, the Western University, Rhodes College, I taught a class on jihad and I taught a class on radical Islam. And so I'm reading their books and I'm you know, you know, explaining and whatnot, reading the material of ISIS. It is very clear that they are quoting the Najdi Da'wah and the first of phase of the Najdi Da'wah. They are indeed. Now, and what, what it became very clear to me and at the rise of ISIS that, hey, the Najdi Da'wah, phase one, 1790, you know, 1800, and the current movement of ISIS are very, very, very similar. Not exactly the same, but there's too much similarity. Yeah. And why am I feeling uncomfortable at ISIS if it is the Najdi Da'wah? As practiced by Ibn Abdul Wahab, because the Najdi Da'wah is original, and ISIS is original. They go back to the Najdi Da'wah. They don't like the uh, third wave Najdi Da'wah. I went over this in my Najdi lectures. Oh, you can listen to that, right? Why am I uncomfortable if this is what I actually believe. Because when you see the impact of saying everybody else is a kafir and mushrik and we're going to execute them, which is what ISIS did, right? Everybody who doesn't follow our khilafah, everybody who doesn't follow our understanding of Islam, automatically you're a mushrik. We can do this, we can do that. And they did it. Why am I feeling uncomfortable? And it made me realize that I need to think deeply about this because if it is true, then I should not feel uncomfortable. And if it's not true, well then I have misunderstood. And so that, it was an awakening because of our circumstances, not because of governmental pressure. I mean, inshallah, I, I, I seek Allah's refuge from ever changing the deen because of what somebody else says. But sometimes you realize something because of experience. And to me, this was it, to, to, to see. We don't have the luxury of breaking up the bonds of the ummah over classical issues of asma'u sifat or istighath or, or tawassul. And to uncomfortably realize that almost all of the terroristic movements have one degree of separation from Najdi Da'wah, whether it's Al-Qaeda, whether it's ISIS, whatnot. Why don't we find those movements coming from other strands of Islam? Not that other strands are innocent of all crimes. You know, other strands are guilty of subservience to the rulers. You get of my course. point with Egypt and whatnot, right? Of so course. when I criticize the Da'wah I came from, it's not exonerating other Da'wahs. And that's another point I need to be clear here. Every single strand of Islam has its faults. Every single strand of developed, you know, theological, political strand, whether it's Deobandism, whether it's, you know, the Habaib of Yemen, whether it's, you know, um, the Qayrawan University, whether it's Al-Azhar, there is no one that's 
100% correct. That's Allah and His Messenger. Al-Haqq is Allah Azza wa Jal. Every strand has its pros and cons. I have more of a duty to speak about the strand that I came from because that's me and I have yes. the right to say this. Whereas if I start <coughs> criticizing other strands, that might lead to sectarianism. So uh, where was I? I completely lost my train of thought. You're talking about you've, you've got grounds and basis to criticize yes. the, the thinking and the background that you came from. Yes. So the reality of the world situation forced me to reassess my theological views. That's what it is. It's not pressure from anybody else. Alhamdulillah, that pressure, even if it increased, I was never jailed, but I was harassed and intimidated at airports and, uh, you know, interrogations, you know, the standard post 9-11 stuff that happened, uh, you know, the, the, the governmental monitors when I traveled here and there, every country I'd go to. I mean, minor nuisance in the in grand scale of things. I was never put into jail. But inshallah, I hope, may Allah protect me from jail. I, I hope mean. that never would I change my theology simply because of a threat of an external factor. My religion is more precious to me than, than that. So no, it's not pressure, but it is political context within the ummah. Some have said in the UK, um, Wallahi, we're not making any remote comparison to you, but there have been some in the UK who came from that background, right? I mean, let's take, uh, Sheikh, I'm just saying beforehand, we're not making any comparison. This is an example that I'm citing from the UK. If we take the son of Sheikh Suhaib Hassan, Dr. Osama Hassan, who came also from that background, someone who you have conversed and debated with, the very famous debate uh, from many years ago, um, he was someone that many have said that when he came into exposure to secular academia, that's when the concerns of Osama Hassan and his ajib and of course, now we know very clear heretical views uh, became apparent. It was due to the exposure of secular academia. Have you personally, have you personally ever felt your exposure, your journey, your experience, your pursuit of knowledge in the secular academic path has ever shaken or questioned uh, your Islamic foundations or even certain positions with regards to creed and theology? Not Islam, no. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, I've never, ever, ever doubted <laughs> the religion of Allah Azza wa Jal. Not for one millisecond of my adult life, alhamdulillah. And the reason for this, and I don't mind saying this, uh, and I say this inshallah as a love for the Quran, not as a praise of me. The reason for this is because I memorized the Quran as a teenager, 13, 14 years old, I think. Sorry, inshallah. 15, I think, 15. So, when you memorize the Quran and you're reading it and you're reciting it, and alhamdulillah, inshallah, every day there's a little recitation. I mean, when you do that, the Quran is a protector. The Quran is, is something that is in the heart of the person. Inshallah, it's, it's, it's almost impossible for somebody who recites the Quran to ever doubt it. And maybe there's one in history, maybe it's happened, but it's not going to happen, inshallah, as a norm, right? So never in my life has there been a shak about the deen of Allah Azza wa Jal because of the Quran. Because of the Quran. There's just no question. Interpretations of Islam, yes, no doubt. I'm not going to lie about that, no question. Interpretations of how we understand something, yeah, but that's not the, the religion of Islam. That is an interpretation of a trend. Um, I said this in the Najdi Da'wah lecture, uh, my studies at Yale had nothing to do with my um, changing my Najdi Da'wah creed. That has to do with what I explained to you. But what Yale did do is it taught me tools of contextualization and what is called critical thinking. I mean, you can call it whatever you will, but uh, it's an usul of how to study ilm. That's really what it is. 
It's a paradigm of how you view history, of how you view intellectual development. You know, as I said in other lectures I've given, you know, my teachers at Yale did not know Islam better than I did. That's not the reality. But they are exposed to overall the science of knowledge and the science of history. Sheikh, can those secular tools be utilized in making sense of the Islamic epistemology or Islamic creed? Can those tools which you... Not, not, not fully, for sure. For sure, not fully. But are you going to reject everything that doesn't make any sense? Because we find many of these tools practiced by Imam al-Dhahabi, for example. Okay? okay. The tools of approaching history are free of any ideology or theology. Okay. The tools of approaching intellectual academic development, intellectual developments, is something that has nothing to do with any one religion or civilization. And again, this is not the time to get into there. But uh, I have given other examples and other lectures that I've that I've spoken about. It's really, uh, it's really something that transcends any one faith or tradition, how we view history. And one point that in my expertise of theology, I greatly benefited from in Medina, for example, uh, you don't really connect the dots when it comes to other civilizations. Everything begins uh, historically from, you know, uh, uh, our Arabic sources. When you break away from only Arabic sources, you can begin to connect the dots with Byzantine, with Sassanid empires, with the various trends uh, pre-Islam and post-Islam. And an example that I'll give my the viewers that are that are watching this, I gave a library chat on the origins of the Sifat controversy. Okay? okay, I advise you to listen to that one on the origins of the Sifat controversy. Why did the Sifat become problematic? This actually goes back to intra-Christian disputes that were taking place. Yeah. in Syria when the Muslims conquered it. Of course. Now, we don't really know the details of those disputes from our Arabic sources. There are references, Ghailan al-Dimishqi said this, or Sosan said this, or whatever said that. There are references, okay? But when you break away from the only Arabic sources and you enter into ancient Greek, ancient Latin, or ancient you know, uh, Aramaic sources, when you start studying other histories, all of a sudden you begin to connect the dots in ways you couldn't connect from only your own tradition. Why is that problematic? Where would the problem come if you understood that the Sifat controversy is actually something that is emanating from you know, intra-monophysite Christian sectarian debates? Can I, say, can I say where the problem can come? You know when you're saying connecting the dots... I think the issue that some have said that when you start, I guess, breaking away from what's regarded as normative Arabic sources and trying to understand the wider reality and contextualization of that specific discussion at that time, it would be that it wouldn't necessarily be a case for connecting the dots for those who are fortunate to be firm upon their faith. It would be the blurring of lines between the dots. If yeah, there's, transition. there's a risk. I mean, there's always a risk. There's no question about that. And um, I, I do not encourage... Uh, Western academia uh, unless you know what you're doing. I've said this multiple times. I've never encouraged the average graduate of a madrasa or, you know, whatnot to just jump into Western. It's, it's a different It's a different paradigm. You need to know what you're getting out of it and you need to want to get it out of there. Otherwise, yes, agreed. So if you start historicizing the Quran or the Prophet you have left everything. Of course. And that's my line. And I said this in my public lectures, right? The Quran is a divine spark that came down. The Quran is Allah's revelation. We do not historicize it. That's a, the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ as a person, as an individual. He was chosen by Allah. We don't historicize, oh, there are messianic movements before. No. But history, Islamic history, that's not divine. Islamic history, the Umayyads, the Abbasids. Oh, okay? These are, these are incidents and events that took place. Exactly. The yeah. controversies that occurred in the first century. That's of not course. divine. No. So 
I believe, and again, I'm not asking anybody to, to agree with this. It's my position. I believe that I am taking the best of both worlds. And inshallah, it's up to the, the viewers to synthesize and see. Listen to my, especially my library chats. That's where I really become a little bit more, more academic. Listen to my library chats and judge for yourself. This is what I'm doing. That I believe I'm taking the best of both worlds. But at the same time, uh, and again, I guess I'll, I'll make this disclaimer here. And I, again, I've said this multiple times and I'll say it very clearly. I do not want to cause any doubt of any issue to any Muslim that is practicing Islam upon an established trend and with mashayikh and ulama that he looks up to. So if a person is happy in the trend that they're upon, whether it is tasawwuf, whether it is deobandism, whether it is barilwism even, whether it is whatever it might be, and they're worshipping Allah, and they're happy, and, they're and they feel confident in what they're doing, good for them. I am not asking anybody to leave what they're upon and then follow my version, which is not a version. No, I am preaching and teaching to a niche audience. It's up to them to take it or leave it. I don't want to invite anybody away from an established school so that they doubt their school and then, you know, uh, approach this. Rather, what I have found, there are many Muslims who are intellectually curious and they find my type of teaching appealing to them. That's my audience. Okay. Simple as that. I'm not calling anybody away, even Najdis or whatnot. If you're happy where you're upon, good for you. Stay where you are. Just don't cause fitna in the ummah. You and the Sufis and the Badawis, don't cause fitna in the ummah. Worship Allah, go to your masjid, be pious and righteous, support the causes of the ummah, and inshallah you will all enter Jannah based upon iman and taqwa and piety. Allah will not cause Shalom. you to enter Jannah because you have a big S on your chest that you are a Salafi or a Najdi. That's not how you enter Jannah. So I am not wanting to cause anybody's version of Islam to be in doubt, but I'm preaching and teaching in a way that appeals to a certain segment. And generally, these are people that are not interested in one particular sect, and they're wanting to be more ecumenical, and they find my teaching uh, to be of use to them. Sheikh, so let's, let's, I'm, I'm glad you kind of concluded on the point of the disclaimer that you don't want to cause doubts, and you definitely, you certainly do not want to move people away from established practices of their deen. Uh, and so forth, but but let's 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 go into not details. Perhaps if you're comfortable, we can do that later on. But some of the quote unquote controversies, right? And 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 the somewhat unfortunate uh, context in the way they came to surface, right? Before we get to that, some would argue that whatever it was, whether it was the Jujamah Juj position that you clarified, whether it was your conversation with uh, our brother Muhammad Hijab uh, regarding the haruf, the Qur'an and so forth and the preservation of the Qur'an and whether it was a two, three minute clip that was doing the rounds with, when you were in a, I believe it was an interfaith discussion, it was about the hudud, whatever it may be, whatever those topics that had caused quote-unquote somewhat of an uproar in Muslim Twitter, Muslim online, do you believe that there is a basis for the awam to hold people of knowledge to account in the way that it has become so normal on social media? Uh, it is not the haq of the awam to question the ulama. It is the haq of other ulama to question the ulama. It is a communal obligation that Allah has placed upon the people of knowledge okay. because we cannot expect for the awam Hanafi Shafi'i might be a huge difference, which it is in many places in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, as you know. Where you put your hands becomes a fitna. Whether you say Ameen out loud or not becomes a fitna, right? 
This is what happens when you allow the awam to become the policers and enforcers. And we see the chaos that is being caused, you know, around the social media. When people who are not qualified to criticize take it upon themselves to criticize. If and again, obviously, you're, you're, you're touching a personal nerve because all of us are frustrated and irritated. There's no denying this. We're human beings. We're all frustrated and irritated by the rise of, you know, a new class of uh, uh, people who, um, let me choose my adjectives with care, yani they display neither knowledge nor wisdom nor Islamic mannerisms. And they are, I'm using this with care, wallahi, but it's clear that some of them really are fitna mongers. And I don't say this harshly. I say this factually. They want to cause drama and create controversy when none should exist. And they find clips that are obscure, unknown, 10-second clips of Umar Suleiman, myself, Abu Isa, whatever. And, you know, maybe even years old, maybe even the context is very clear. And they'll take it and then spread it with a very, you know, uh, uh, harsh adjectives and words and, you know, pagan rituals and kafir and, you know, crypto reformers and whatnot. And subhanAllah, any person of ilm, any person of ilm, if he came across this, would either, you know, understand what the context was going on or make an excuse based upon the, the entire uh, methodology of the person, which is well known with in Internet and YouTube, or at the very least, make sure that they understand that this is actually correct and, and make a phone call or find out before making a drama out of it, right? So this is what happens when proper Islamic protocol is not followed. You don't need to subscribe to Netflix or HBO Facebook becomes your entertainment session because of the social drama. And fitna is created when none should have been created. And people become involved in things that are of no benefit to them iman-wise and rather are distractions and rather bring about a sense of sin maybe even by saying things they shouldn't say. And then also, a'udhu billah, it, 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 har it harms overall preaching and teaching because a sense is created, a false sense, that all teachers and preachers are sold out, except for a group of nobodies, to be honest, a group of untrained, whatever. These are the people upon the haqq. And I've spoken about this as explicitly as I can in my interview on madkhalism with hijab. You can listen to that. I have many Facebook posts about this issue, but it is what it is. People yeah. like to, you know, to do that. So no, I, I, to answer your question, no. The average Muslim should stick with ulama that they like and appreciate. If any alim, and that includes, you know, a talib ilm like me, brings doubt to them, abandon that and stick with the people that you trust. But do not create a controversy and do not speak about others. That's not your role. Follow your ulama and worship Allah Azza wa Jal and don't take from people that you feel doubtful about. Sheikh, in that case, let me, let me just play the advocate of the other side yeah, for a moment. The fact that when these clips, statements have been circulated, have surfaced years after, have been shared uh, with blurbs that are um, somewhat vitriolic and uh, you know, you know, very, very targeted and so forth. The fact is that when that's happened, clarification statements have been issued by yourself, have been issued by Imam Omar Suleiman, have been issued by Professor Jonathan Brown, has been issued by Hamza Yusuf when he says he's tired and therefore he said so. So the fact is that when we get clarifications and excuses, it, what what it does, and I'm just saying this, is that it, it comes across that. So there was some khayr in this being circulated and shared because it forced them to clarify a matter or them to retract on a matter and so forth. That's what the other side would argue to some degree. So 
you're the one, not you, but you're the one who brought this minor slip up to international media attention. Nobody would have known about it. Okay. Hamza Yusuf's clip, for example, clearly it was a mistake. Clearly. And he himself clarified. And the context of it, you know, it was taken years before the actual uprising, whatever. I'm not justifying. Clearly it was a mistake. But nobody knew about it until that 10 second clip goes viral. Justification is done. Umar Suleiman's clip. No doubt, when I saw it, it was like, Astaghfirullah, bro, why would you do that? But I know him well enough to know that there is no kufr or shirk involved. You know, there's, you do something, you don't understand the repercussions. He himself clarified. But here's the point. If that particular person had not found, after scouring thousands of materials, that 10-second clip that goes back four years and made a big controversy over it, it would not have been a controversy. So why create, you would have, you could have called Umar Suleiman, tell him, bro, you have this clip here. I know this is a mistake. He would have, you know, cut it off of YouTube. Khalas, no damage done. But to accuse him of being like a secret murtad, you know, libation, and he's doing pagan rituals. Come on, bro. And he have some iman and taqwa. This is a person, inshallah, I have no doubt, prays the hajjud, memorizing the Quran, whatnot. You're going to say he is a secret pagan? So, and with me, of course, I don't want to get personal, but again, the same thing, a crypto reformer, Qardawi is a crypto reformer, he's a semi-murtad, Sheikh Salman al-Audi, these are my mashayikh, you know, in terms of fiqh and whatnot. So accusing me of being somebody who wants to destroy the deen, and I have mashayikh far bigger than me that are saying the exact same thing. And either this person is ignorant or willfully ignorant, or, again, so it gets painful because, wallahi, nobody likes to be accused in the deen. And this is pure kadib and buhtan, and anybody... Who, who makes these accusations intentionally, I find it difficult to forgive in this world. Maybe in the akhirah I will forgive, but after I get my ajr, after I get my ajr fully from this type of slander, because it is a slander of the highest magnitude. So I throw it back to you and I say, they're the ones who created uh, the, the controversies in the first place. Now, that doesn't mean every single case should be ignored. But if an average person finds something problematic, they should go to their own teachers, their own ulama. They should go and up the hierarchy, how it's supposed to be done. Have a sheikh or an alim or a talib al-ilm, then contact the person. Figure out, is it worthy to go public and make a, 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 you know, um, a, a clip that say this is wrong? Or can the damage be done? In the end of the day, ya akhi dili, look, whether you like it or not, certain individuals uh, are so active in preaching to the masses that attacking them is going to attack many of the people's attachment to knowledge. You know, you know. I don't mind saying this. Um, should I mention this name or not? Let me just say, because I don't want to get into trouble. One of the most prominent white converts to Islam, senior to me in age and conversion, leave it at that, okay. has certain political stances that I disagree with. I'll just be generic here, okay? And I met him three years ago, and I showered him with praise. In a Was way it that in Hajj, I believe you met him in Hajj. I'm not going to mention names. Okay. I showered in private, me and him, and just his students. And I said, Sheikh, for many people, you are the icon of Islam in North America. For many people, you represent the tradition. I gave him so much praise, and it was from the heart. It wasn't something yani, completely false. And I tried to use that, and I say, Sheikh, when people attack you because of your stances, they are attacking the deen and religiosity. And, and I said this to somebody whom I actually disagree with on a maybe fiqhi or aqadi level as well. But insha'Allah, I am insha'Allah open-minded enough to realize that 
this individual represents a tradition of Sunni Islam. And attacking him is attacking orthodoxy to one level. So I begged him to rethink through his positions because I understood that the people that are attacking him, many of them are secularists. Many of them don't like the deen. And they're using him as an example of attacking the religiosity of people. You understand what I'm saying here? Without mentioning him. That, and I, so I want to counter it back to you, and I want to say that what about let's put let's put aside the secular critics. Let's talk. Let's put aside those who deep inside do not love the Deen of Islam. Let's talk about those who do have ghira for Islam, and would say that. Let's not talk about a specific uh, person of knowledge. Let's talk generally. When when prominent scholars of that ilk affiliate themselves to particular states or a particular mindset, that that has real life repercussions on the ground in places like Egypt. It has real life repercussions in places like Libya. It has real life repercussions to do with the censorship and the policing of peaceful charitable organizations in the West. So how much tiptoeing and how much softness is required when that kind of affiliation and support... Very valid point, and I don't have an easy answer. To this day, I have refused to wage online war or battle against these particular individuals to this day and that's my ijtihad and i could be wrong I admit have you ever been tempted to have you ever considered it yes yes okay. yes because okay. some things have happened in those lands in the rich oil rich countries and these individuals have said things it hurts like anything and you feel like but then and this is a very personal thing but inshallah i hope there's ikhlas here i have to question myself Am I doing this so that I can level the playing field and get rid of other people on the da'wah playing field for my own ego? Or am I doing this genuinely for the sake of Allah? And that is one reason why I feel maybe I'm not the best person to do this. Because I understand that shaitan, his waswasa could be deep. And I have to doubt my own reasons why I might be doing that. So... I have erred on the side of caution and I have been silent even about their teachers whom I think is much less reason for me to be silent about <laughs> even about their grand muftis of back mm -hmm. home. I've spoken about um, um, uh, the grand mufti of Egypt and whatnot. I've spoken about them multiple times. But bro, Dili, let's be honest here. Why are we concentrating just on those guys when there are mashayikh on our side that have justified the chopping up of a human being in an embassy in a Muslim land. So let's be honest here. Let's not play double standards here. There are mashayikh that quote you Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim, and Ibn Abdul Wahhab, and, and uh, whatnot, right? And they have Islamically justified the brutal murder of a human being and a Muslim in the most vicious manner. Why don't we, why don't we make a point of that as well? And I have to say, Sheikh, Sheikh, come on, you, you, without again mentioning it, there is no one as prominent from that persuasion. Okay, agreed. Valid point. Salamna, valid point. But are you going to be consistent? And are you going to call out your own? Do you fear inconsistency with yourself? No, not with me, because I've already called out the da'wah multiple times and okay. logical issues. So, so in that case, then, in that case, you have more premise than not to then be consistent. And then, like I said, so like I said, um, not only that, but. I just feel 
the refutation culture that has been created by uh, this group of new um, overzealous under Wallahi, the, the description of the Khawarij comes to mind all the time. This is exactly what the Prophet said about Khawarijites. And it really, there's an element of that in this new crowd. They think they're defending the deen and they cause so much damage to the deen. It's kind of scared me that what if I'm doing that at a higher level? Is it really? So here's the point, Dilly. Will my warning against that individual accomplish anything? People have already made up their minds and this track record is clear, right? Why will my jumping on the bandwagon of critics make anything different? My... Because you're Sheikh Yasser Qadi. Today, today, right now, uh, coincidentally, I posted on Facebook and Twitter about, uh, you know, the, the, the execution of 12 Mashaikh in, in Egypt yes. and criticized strongly. I don't know if you saw that or not. Right now, okay? My position is very clear. Very clear. Alhamdulillah, consistent here. I think that's good enough. I present my opinion. The other side is presenting or not presenting in this case its opinion. And it's very clear. So I don't need to name and shame in order to bring my point across. It, there are ways to do that. Okay, let's let's get really controversial, but please don't mention names, okay? No, no, we won't mention we won't mention names. Um there's a certain individual, uh very popular in England. Uh, who has some very esoteric views. I call him a new Mu'tazili, you know, denying things and that, this and that, a hadith. And very, you know, recently his house was roughed up, let's say, okay? No one named to niche individuals. Now, a number of prominent critics had to issue disclaimers. Oh, we didn't mean that to happen. I have indirectly criticized this individual in like half a dozen lectures. I had to issue no disclaimer. Because nobody, I mean, nobody could link my indirect overall, you know, criticism. I have a whole lecture about the return of Jesus because of him. Mm. Because of him, the whole lecture. And I even mentioned him by name in that lecture. But I did not need to issue a disclaimer that, hey, my lecture wasn't in. Why did I not need to do that? Because there's a way to get your point across without inciting hatred. Without an even, without even the potential. I'm not saying that some of the online people uh, caused the, the ruckus, I know they didn't, but they had to issue disclaimers that they didn't intend for that to happen. I did not have to issue a disclaimer because I don't believe in preaching hatred against an individual because that is potentially going to lead to violence. So, simple point to you, Akhidili. There's a way to get your point across without creating drama and fitna. I would hope that I'm doing that in my methodology of teaching and yes, even calling people out and correcting incorrect understandings of Islam. Those who you have described as having neo-Khariji or Khariji traits in the way they go about um, articulating themselves or you would argue lack of articulation and, and, and the way they go about holding um, others to account, people of knowledge to account. How would you then counter those Muslims who have had a cursory reading of the seerah, those who have watched your lectures on the life of the Sahaba, may Allah be pleased with them all, of Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman and Ali, and how... Holding people of knowledge to account in a particular manner, in a particular tone, in a particular way Can fall within their obligation of Amr bil maruf and nahi al munkar Or to try, also, and, and, and when you hear about how the women had held Amr bil Khattab to account regarding the, the mahar And there were others that stood up in Jum'ah and said that we will straighten you with our swords and so forth There's various examples that are cited to say that, well look, you know, you can't just call us khadiji That's just a cop-out 
We're holding no, people. No, no, to... I, I didn't call those critics khadiji. I said they have tendencies that overlap with khadijism. They're not okay. khadiji in that. Okay. Okay. okay, even tendencies, even trace, even to make a comparison, they they, they would argue saying that well, well, this is a part of. Yeah, us. Dili, the 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 reality is different from the examples you've given. They are not qualified to call out a mistake. They're not qualified. Much of what they criticize others for is not a mistake. It's something that they don't know. They haven't been exposed to. And they make it into a mistake. Some of what they criticize for could be corrected in a manner that doesn't cause any drama. So my point is, the reality shows that the fitna that is created, and you know this better than anybody else being in England, what they're doing is the essence of madkhalism. You know this. It's the essence of madkhalism. And we've lived through the madkhali era. We've seen the damage that madkhalis do to their own adherents, completely spiritually bankrupt, right? Complete burnout to practicing Islam because they can no longer, you know, be good Muslims after that. The same thing is going to happen to this group of people. You cannot create a da'wah whose premise is refuting other da'wahs. And yet this is what this movement is doing. Da'wah has to be more than just refutations. Refutation is like salt. The people that are qualified do it just in the right amount. So if you find something that I say problematic, Umar Suleiman does problematic, Abu Isa problematic, go to people senior to us. Here in America, we have Sheikh Salah al-Sawi. We consider him to be a great alim, allama. In England, you have great ulama as well. Go through the chain. They will understand when to go public, when to keep private, what is a mistake, what isn't a mistake. Like I said, again, because you're talking to me, much of the criticisms that some of these um, you know, uh, ignoramuses uh, create, it's not worthy of criticism at all. It's mainstream Sunnism. You know, I don't mind mentioning this because our brother just passed away, Mufti Taha Karan. Uh, may Allah have mercy on him. Amen. Mufti Taha is an allama. Now everybody across, you, you heard his, of his death. He's a don. He's a don, of course. A, a don. I mean, wallahi, a don in every sense of the term, okay? I don't mind saying this because he's passed away now. We can praise him even more, mashallah, tabarakallah. Um, you know, this, this, this brother, whatever, this person criticizing me for crypto reform or whatnot uh, because I talked about the hudud in this manner. Wallahi, as Allah is my witness, my conversations with Muthi Taha, they're on my phone. I can even, uh, you know, uh, publicize them if need to be if people doubt this. I'm having a uh, discussion with him about the hudud. And I asked him point blank. I said, so Mufti, this is last year. What do you think then of the proposition that in the modern world, given the nation state and given all of the problems and whatnot, if we call for a rethinking of the hudud for the nation states, not in the Sharia, not a permanent abrogation, but to rethink through in Pakistan, in Tunisia, in Turkey, if we rethink and we make it penalties or you know uh, jail or whatnot, is this in accordance with the Sharia? I'm asking him because I consider him my senior in knowledge. He is older than me and more knowledgeable than me. And that's my methodology. I always ask people that I trust. So this is a conversation I'm having Mufti Taha Karan. You know what he said to me? Yes, mm. he said, yes, our history is replete with such examples and it is in accordance with the goals of the Sharia. He said basically, I mean, I don't quote the wordings. He basically said our problem is our ulama are so literalist that they cannot understand that this is of the goals of the Sharia, to rethink through. And because they're so literalist and fundamentalist, he said they have opened the door for progressive Islam, which is something that I've said multiple times. If you're not going to allow legitimate reform, now the term reform, 
makes people worried and scared. When I say reform, obviously my examples are all very clear. We're talking about applying standard usul al-fiqh. We're talking about mainstream epistemology, nothing radical. The Quran, the Sunnah, the Ijma', but rethinking through the textbooks written a thousand years ago. Rethinking through the light of modernity. Mufti Taha is telling me, yes, we should do this. Shaykh Qardawi is saying this. All of the great ulama are saying this. Now, the brother comes along, yani, may Allah yani, guide him and uh, if he doesn't repent, then wallah, this particular person, I have no doubt, inshallah, hasanat on the day of judgment because I have kept my tongue very uh, as much as possible. But still, uh, this brother comes along and accuses a'udhu billah almost of ridda, almost like he wants to destroy Islam from inside. I mean, honestly, this is jahal murakkab. This is the position of many, many ulama. This is the mainstream default of every single alim that is involved with the councils of Mecca, of Rabita, and the International Union, uh, uh, Union of Muslim Scholars. This is mainstream Sunni fiqh. But our brother here doesn't know this, or he's intentionally ignoring this. And he creates an entire controversy, slandering another Muslim and da'i, accusing of crypto reform, or you know, semi-ridda, or paganism, whatever it might be. So that's the problem, Dili. You're opening the floor for ignoramuses to become leaders. It's not their job and responsibility. If the brother feels or anybody feels something is wrong, go up the chain. Ask your ulama, is this something permissible or not? And let them decide what to do. Before we uh, bring the podcast, not to a close, but to its concluding topic, there is one specific topic I did want to ask you about. I don't want to go into the actual subject matter of the ahruf and the preservation of the Quran and so far, what I want to perhaps ask you is the exchange that took place between you and Muhammad Hijab. Um, I guess the edited version after what took place afterwards among some Christians and Islam haters. Um, do you have any regrets about that particular engagement with uh, Hijab? Yes, of course. I'm a human being and I make mistakes. And I made a mistake uh, with the wordings of that interview. No question about that. Um, May Allah forgive any mistakes that were made. It wasn't done intentionally, and uh, I learned my lesson. These types of difficult topics, uh, you should not impromptu and have a have a written script about it. Uh, you know, having a, a live interview uh, without a script on these difficult topics. I think one of the fundamental mistakes I made, uh, and by the way, so Dilly, this goes back to the exact previous point of controversies and whatnot. Because, sorry, Shaykh, so created before that because it was through an unfortunate email leak because people thought that they're defending the faith because they're of a particular persuasion. Again, that Najdi mindset, everybody's a deviant, we have to hunt deviants. That's one of the, my criticisms of that mindset. Is, Is the Maslaha argument not good enough? You want to find deviancy in other people. You want to kick people off rather than bring people in, right? So when you hear a position that you have not heard, but it is a mainstream position that goes back to great imams like At-Tahawi, like others, which I can quote, which we're not going to go here. When you have a position that is very well established, but you as a minor Talibim have never heard of it. And then somebody comes along, you haven't heard it, khalas, he must be a deviant. And so, you know, the person leaks all the emails, you know, again, these, these you know, Najdis, um, they think they, they, again, they think they know everything, but because they haven't been taught it. So, khalas, the maslaha is to expose. Yeah, again, creating an entire controversy. My positions, I have spoken to very, very uh, openly with other tulab al-ilm and mashayikh. Not a single one amongst them has considered me to be a deviant. Not one. 
and I do not keep this hidden. Anybody comes to me, you show me you know this material, I'll open up to you. But it's not a material that should be put on YouTube or online. This is very difficult, very advanced stuff. I have spoken about this in many private gatherings with Tullab al-ilm. However, this brother, you know, does what he does for whatever reason. Allah is going to be his judge and on the day of judgment, I will, his, his knee is between him and Allah. And if I get hasanat, it will be, I don't have to give hasanat for sure because I have again kept quiet in this regard. Wallahi, I have kept quiet about this and all others despite all that they have done. I ask Allah to keep me, my, my tongue silent about as much as I can about my fellow Muslims. In any case, the hijab interview was done for damage control to what these guys have done. And the irony is, this shows you the problems of witch hunting, right? This shows you the problems, the entire ummah, you know, uh, online da'wah, I should say, not ummah, the online da'wah scene, it was negatively affected because of the unwise choice. And also because, uh, this is not a defense, I, I, I don't know the brother Muhammad Hijab that well, he seems like a good brother, mashallah. I didn't know that he is interacting with this group of Christian missionaries, right? Mm. That group had nothing to do with me pre-hijab, and I had nothing to do with them. I had no idea that that group is going to listen to everything from Muhammad Hijab, right? I've never dealt with that group, and I had no plan to because they're not academics. They're really a bunch of fitna mongers. You know, yeah. you know the... Yeah, they religi they they religiously follow what they do analytically and look for any kind of slip up, even when there is. So, so I have never engaged with them, and I don't plan to. I, I had to for one library chat because of this. Okay, I made a mistake in the wordings about ahruf and qiraat, and it was a bit ambiguous. As I clarified, they jumped on this and they extrapolated to the essence of the Quran. The context is very clear. I'm talking about an opinion of the Ahruf. There are holes in the narrative about the position of Ahruf, not about the preservation of the Quran. It's very clear. The narrative of the Ahruf and the position about the Ahruf and Qiraat. Okay, not a wise choice of wording, okay? I still thought, you know what, if somebody listens to the entire context, is very clear. So for at least two, three weeks, I didn't take down the interview. But this group of people took the holes of the narrative and whatnot, and they said he's doubting the Quran. A'udhu billah, a'udhu billah. He's oh, doubting yeah. the preservation of the Quran. And that's when I realized, you know what? These people don't have scruples. They don't have morality. They don't, they ju they're just going to do whatever. So I thought, you know what? It's just best that I, you know, use the, the, the you know, a copyright card and just get rid of it because they don't have scruples. I still believe if you listen to the entire interview, it's very clear that what they're deriving from it has nothing to do with uh, you know what I myself said still a better choice of wording uh, could have been done and this also shows you like I said the dangers of opening up this door when you're not qualified to criticize this is not a topic that needs to be discussed on a YouTube video you don't need to release an entire refutation of Ahruf Wallahi, I mean how anyway let's not go down there Ahruf is one of the most complicated topics in the entire Ulum al-Quran in the entire mm -hmm. Ulum al-Quran if I hold a position that is minority no problem. Let the ulama come. We can discuss as we have done. And we're going to go away with no problems. But when you get an ignoramus fool who thinks he knows when he doesn't know, a complete jahal murakkab, he doesn't even know. And wallahi, I have spoken with some of these people. I have to tell them, have you read this book? No, I haven't. Have you read that book written in 350 years? No, I haven't. Have you read the position of Imam so-and-so? No, I haven't. I said to one of these brothers, Yaqi, you haven't even read the basic stuff and you think you're qualified to criticize me? You haven't even done the research and you think that because you've never heard of it, this must be a vulnerable a position. That's why criticism should be done by the people who are qualified to do so. Sheikh, back. This is the example of this, Yaqi. So, so if we talk about when this leak initially took place, there was obviously one uh, prominent online figure 
um, who was associated with that da'wah, who uh, made a video and he did the rounds and, and got a fair amount of views. Am I correct, Sheikh, that there was some engagement between yourself and this individual uh, prior to the release of this video? I have to think, should I? <laughs> I don't like to give attention to such people because I really view... Um, so I guess what I'm, trying to get, what I'm trying to get is that did you identify the lack of knowledge that you're claiming during those interactions? That's the point I'm trying to make. That's very clear. That's very okay. clear. There's no question about that. Okay. And I don't want to get too much, but it is also very clear that drama was intended to be created. It could have been minimized. No, because you weren't the only person that they, they pursued. Uh, our own Murabbi and teacher, Sheikh Haytham, and others were part of that uh, witch hunt as well for, for other. Unrelated. But they didn't need to even create any drama, they had access to me and to people around me, and it could have been clarified in a very easy manner. But to me, it appears that there was an intentional desire, for whatever reason, I'm not opening their hearts if they really, really thought that I'm semi-murtad and I should be exposed for the benefit of the ummah, or were there other ulterior motives? Because unfortunately, brother, may Allah protect you and grant me ikhlas, but yaqi, if you Amen. have a lecture refuting YQ and you're a nobody, it's going to get 20,000 hits over a, a night, you know? Mm. And we've seen this with when I gave the, 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 the answer about asking the dead and I said that you know it's haram and you should not do it people who were unknown released very harsh language and their YouTube videos are in the hundreds of thousands you know YQ is promoting shirk subhanallah I mean this is the position of Ibn Hajar was he promoting shirk as well this is the position of a suyuti you're gonna say so again and I didn't even respond to them just silence and I gave the Najdi lecture because of this right this is the problem when people who are not qualified get into the refutation culture you become somebody who drama is associated with your name and now that you have nothing you don't have knowledge to give to the people all you're doing is criticizing others so you become you know like a, a worn out stereo just uh, mm. you know going round and round all you can do is Sheikh Haytham this Abu Suleiman this Abu Yasser this Abu Isa this just constantly all you can do is constantly criticize other people and that becomes your da'wah because you have nothing else to give to the people I think the less attention we give to that group and just concentrate on preaching and teaching, which is inshallah, if you look at my lectures, the majority of my 99 inshallah percent is just lecture series, benefit, whatnot. Once in a while, you have to correct somebody else. That's done generically, and then leave it on after that. Right. Sheikh, bringing the podcast to a close to our concluding topic, there's a reason why I saved this particular topic towards the end, because, again, correct me if I'm wrong, the gist that I'm getting from our conversation today, whether it be your realizations of certain positions of the past, changing those positions, uh, prioritizing uh, unity in terms of the Ummah's reality, whether it be in the West or in the Muslim world and so forth. Um, I've saved the discussion of revival and Muslim unity towards the end because I, I feel, if I'm correct, Sheikh, is that one of the reasons of your change in positions or your journey has been geared towards this greater objective of Muslim unity. Would I be correct in understanding that? We all wish for the revival of the Ummah. That's what we're doing. We all wish and we are seeing a type of revival that is different from the 60s and 70s and 80s. Alhamdulillah. So yes. Okay. No so, so, bef so before we go into this concluding uh, topic of discussion, just like there were some quick fire questions to begin with, there's some quick fire questions to close with. Um, I want to ask you some questions. I know some of these questions are not straight 
yes or no questions So we will be elaborating on them But just from your study of Islamic history Especially, uh, you know, the early centuries I want to ask you some questions um, From your reading of this particular subject matter If you have ever researched it Is there any shari'i premise to have two khulafa Within normative Sunni Islam? It was a necessary, uh, not evil, it was just a necessary reality for the bulk of the ummah. That's always been the case, number one. Number two, when you study history, you also realize that the notion of uh, one khalifa doesn't mean central power. The Mughals, for all practical purposes, they were independent. They were, even though they didn't call themselves the khalifa, they really, generally speaking, for their 350 whatever years, what they had nothing to do with the Ottoman Empire. Yes, there's a token, you know, appreciation, but they are independent. So this notion of one unified Khilafah, it's never been like that. Even when we had one Khalifa, you have many dynasties within the empire. Sheikh, that, 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 but would you say that happened more towards the Abbasid period? During the Umayyad, there was quite a centralized state. Especially the early period Yeah, because it's too fast to develop dynasties That's simply the perks of being the first mm. It's just too fast to develop dynasties to that level The Umayyads were only in for 93 years I mean, it's gonna. how much can you possibly do in 93 years? Number one, number two The, 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 the kernels of those dynasties were planted And all you need to do is look at uh, you know, the Umayyad dynasty itself And how it was planted In the time of the Khulafa Rashidun Enough said The kernels were planted you can't help it. That's the way of the world. So the, 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 the historical reality is that we have never had the type of global infrastructural unity that some people imagine of the past. It's always been somewhat, if not somewhat, completely you know, uh, disconnected. It's always you couldn't you can't expect the Muslims of you know um, let's say Uzbekistan to be under the same government as the Muslims you know that were in uh, Morocco and have the same types of policies. The two were for practical purposes completely separate. You know politically speaking, I mean completely disconnected uh, from each other for the bulk of their existence. So yes, I mean one thing is theory, one thing is reality. Theoretically, two khulafa have been around for a long time. You know, rea realistically, what does it mean to khulafa when even one khalifa does not actually? What's the point of one khalifa in some central place in Baghdad when, let's say, generically, seventy percent of the ummah will do nothing if the khalifa commands them to do it? They're completely, for practical purposes, they're disconnected. Wouldn't it be the case that when you look at the works of, let's say, Imam al-Mawardi, al-Hakam al-Sultaniyah, Imam Juwayni, and all theoretical great works, bro, keep them in theory. Were they ever actually, and again, huh, uh, this is going to get me into trouble with some groups of people. Read your histories, man. Read your histories. It's, it's so frustrating to me that people extrapolate utopic, mythological, romanticized notions of the past. Mawardi is writing as a, as a, literally a person in ivory tower. Like literally he's an academic, okay? And that's the ideal, should be the case. Excellent. Was it actually ever in place? Was that actually how it sure. was? But was it was it not the case that he bought the, he wrote those treatises in the context of the weakening Abbasid state and how who applied them? Who applied them? Yes, he wrote yeah, them. Yeah, the Seljuks the Seljuks nominally gave bay'ah. The Ayyubis nominally gave bay'ah. The Ghaznavis nominally because of Mawardi. No, not because no, not because of Mawardi, but but because 
again, um, so Dilly, there's a lot to be said here. You know my background. I know your background, by the way. Yes, so okay. <laughs> I know where you're coming from as well. Yeah. Look, let me just jump the gun and just lay the beans out, as they say. Isn't there a balance? Isn't there a balance between cynicism and excessive utopianism? Surely there's a balance between that. Because there has been cases of sin. Because the, the, Ottomans had, the Ottomans had a very centralized state for the best part of 250 years. They needed from, modernity to do that. They needed the 1800s and the telegraph and whatnot to begin those types of things. Okay, by the way. Now, look, Dilly, again, let me just lay my, my cards out on the table. Very clearly. I am not opposed to those trends that are emphasizing Khilafah and political Islam. I don't view them as deviants or heretics. I believe a spectrum of diversity is healthy for the ummah in this regard. And I believe that live and let live in this case. Okay. What I problematize is that when these trends and the people involved with them get involved in sectarianism and refuting other Muslims more than they get involved with their own goal. And it becomes irritating and a nuisance. And that's why they burn bridges when they don't need to. If you feel that that's your priority, I understand. Bismillah, go for it. But to blame me or others for your priority not having been enacted. Bro, all you're doing is just criticizing other people for doing good when all you do is criticize. And again, uh, the latest example, I was raising funds for Palestine after what happened in Aqsa. Raising funds for uh, hospitals to treat wounded people, you know, in, in the uprising I mean, last month, mm -hmm. right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. yes. Wallahi, like a dozen people, some of them, no mentioning names, you know them, senior members of this movement uh, in the West, in Australia and other places. And all they're doing is criticizing until we establish the Khilafah, these funds are useless. Ya billah, what is your problem, man? These are people dying in the hospital, right? And all you're talking about is a Khilafah, Khilafah, Khilafah. I need to treat the wounded. Either you treat them or you let me raise funds or you establish the Khilafah. All you can do for most of these critics, which is why it's so frustrating, is to criticize everybody else who's not on your wavelength while you get nothing done. And that's why it becomes frustrating. I have nothing against your utopic vision. By the way, that's another problem. You have no idea what the Khilafah actually was. We lost Palestine. We lost Palestine under the Khilafah. We regained it not because of the Khilafah, but because Salah Hadin broke away and became independent. Go read your history. Again, this utopic understanding of what the Khilafah is. Wallahi, you wonder, have they read one chapter in one book of any classical history? You think poverty is going to be eliminated under the Khilafah? You think prostitution is going to be gone? Nobody's going to drink alcohol? Wallah, you have no idea of Islamic history if that's your vision. But that's what they think, that a Khilafah will solve everything. You know what? My opinion, do what you're doing. Khalas, go, establish it. But let me do what I'm doing. I'm a practical, pragmatic person. I want to save the iman of my children and their generation. I want to teach them about the Prophet teach them the Quran, teach them their theology, teach them how they worship Allah Azza wa make them proud to be Muslim. Surely you see there's a need for that. Let me do what I'm doing. But when you take me as a target and all of the other du'at who don't agree with your wavelength as a target, then you are creating the same drama and controversies as the Madkhalis are. I have nothing against many of you working to some political game. May Allah bless you when you establish it. And if it is done in a proper manner, inshallah ta'ala, I think it's great. We're all going to join and whatnot. But allow me some skepticism. If I believe it's not going to happen, and therefore I prioritize other things that are happening, right? That's my interpretation. I could be wrong. You don't need to take me as an enemy, which unfortunately many of them have done. You, you, do you see my point? In this? Yeah, yeah. But, but, but the thing is, 
the Khilafah, Islamic history, the Ottomans is a subject matter which you have lectured on. It's a subject matter, I think, even on the 100th Hijri anniversary since the uh, breakup of the Ottoman Caliphate, you did a lecture. So would you say, let's not talk about specific groups, let's put groups aside and movements aside who have made that their call of their da'wah and so forth. Would you say that that particular notion of wanting an Islamic polity, a polity which would perhaps do more than the 57 plus secular nation states that we have today from the Muslim world, or wanting a leader or groups of leaders or a polity that will do more for the Ummah in the situation of the Uyghurs and the Palestinians and the Kashmiris and so forth, wanting Islamic leadership or Muslim leadership that would perhaps fulfill some of these aspirations would you believe that that falls within the broader umbrella spectrum of revival yes it does not no problem there all i'm saying allow people to have their niches and their areas of expertise number one number two on a personal level and i admit i could be wrong 100 percent. it's my own personal interpretation of whatnot i just don't view it as being logistically possible logistically I'm not talking about Islamically, I'm saying logistically. And I think that people who have these notions are reading in too much, not only to the leader whom they think is going to be the Khalifa, but also to the people that are going to be behind him. Look at the events of the last 15 years. Look at the Arab Spring. Look at Mursi and what happened. Look at some of the leaders of our times, without mentioning names, who might actually maybe in their personal lives be sympathetic to certain causes. But there is real politic, which... It's so easy for us to criticize. When you get to those positions, you have to make massive compromises for whatever reasons. Politics is a filthy and dirty business. It's very dirty. Theologians should not be politicians. And politicians will never be idealistic. That's why the Khulafa al-Rashidun were one era, and that's it. Only one era, 40 years, where the best were our leaders. After that, what happens, happens. So do you really think... You're going to get somebody in power and they will have unfettered access to everything. And all of a sudden they're going to act like an angel. If history has taught you anything, it is that power corrupts. And once you get these people in power, the very people, and that's why Ibn Taymiyyah says, never has any revolution happened except the people who take over are worse than the people who uh, were, were overthrown. The Abbasid showed this as well. And so many other histories have shown this. My point is, number one, logistically, I don't think it's feasible. That's my personal opinion. I could be wrong. And number two, read history. You are, you are creating an imaginary caliphate that has never existed, maybe only in the time of Abu Bakr and Umar, and that's it. Because even Umar and Uthman, Uthman and Ali, their fitan did not allow them to continue in politics yeah. of the first two. Right? Yeah. So you are positing a hypothetical, theoretical, mythological, romanticized version of a caliphate that never actually existed. And you think it's going to exist in 2021. You know, allow me to be skeptical, but I'm not dismissing your goals. Because in the end of the day, it's good to daydream. And it's good to have, have high aspirations. And it's good to romanticize and, 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 and think because maybe out of 20,000 people, if one is successful, good for you. So that's why I'm saying, you do what you're doing. I'm not opposing you. I'm not standing in your path. But I have one life to live. And I have certain talents. And I have certain responsibilities. And I think I'm doing the best for who I am and doing what I'm doing. And I am gently saying to those other brothers on those strands, stop targeting other du'at, if they don't agree with your wavelength and platform, do what you're doing, create whatever 
you know, grandiose visions you have, implement them, and maybe, just maybe, if you're successful, the very people you're criticizing will actually end up supporting you. Because whether you know it or not, inshallah ta'ala, our niyyah is the betterment of the ummah. Our goal is the same. Stop making enemies out of us and concentrate on the goal. You have a different way, I wish you all the best. I have my way, and I think I'm doing what I can do best for the talents that Allah has given me. Sheikh, uh, are you... Are you acquainted with uh, Dr. Oymar Anjum from Yaqeen Institute? Uh, yes, uh, I, I know him very well, yes. Okay, and so obviously I had the pleasure of having him on the podcast, um, I believe a couple of months ago. And um, it, it made me think, when you were talking about logistically not possible in 2021, the logistical problem that you're talking about, are you referring to the nation state or the existing world order in the way it's set up with... Everything, everything. The nation state, the existing world order, and also... A very awkward reality, which Sheikh Akram said it much more bluntly than I would ever say. Leave it to him. I have an interview with Sheikh Akram about this as well. Um, just I asked him this question about Khilafah and whatnot in my interview with him. The reality of the Ummah itself and how strict you can be with them. Is the Ummah willing to live up to the notions and standards that you think a Khilafah is going to bring about? Maybe... The Ummah itself is not willing to get to that level. And if anything, the Arab Spring and what happened with you know, Egypt should be a wake-up call that practicing Muslims flip sides. And to this day, people that are praying five times a day and whatnot did not want people that wanted a religious platform, which shows you a lot of work has got to be done before you get you know, to the top. So... You know, maybe some aspects of Salafism are still around. You know, Albani famously remarked, establish the Khilafah in your hearts, right? And Allah will establish it in the land. Obviously, I don't agree with that, you know, 100%. But I have to say, there's an element of truth there in that let's prioritize what we can actually prioritize. From a purely logistical standpoint, I can impact thousands of Muslims, inshallah ta'ala, hundreds of thousands by teaching and preaching. Your version of a Khilafah, you can be preaching and teaching of it for 50 years and nothing will happen as we see for the movements that are prioritized that. So, cost-benefit analysis. Let me do what I think is beneficial. You do what you think is beneficial. And inshallah, Allah will reward us based upon uh, our niyyat and our efforts, inshallah. Sure. So, remaining on this topic, obviously I wanted to ask you uh, still some, 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 some questions which I'm hoping that you can touch upon. Um, are you then saying that what, however a caliphate or a khilafah Whether it is one which is espoused and described By some of the revivalist groups and political movements Or one if you've ever given some thought about Are you saying that such a polity would be impossible In light of the nation state? Impossible is a big word Who am I unre to say? Un 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 unrealistic, difficult Yeah, that's probably better that's my, But I will be Look, Dili, this is my personal opinion I could be mm. wrong Am I not allowed to have an opinion? People get so flustered. It's my opinion. Mm. How would you have an Islamic state disconnected from the global system? You can't have banks in there. Disconnected from the UN. Uh, look, you know, sorry to bring this up. ISIS tried, whatever their version was. The Taliban tried, whatever their version was. Okay. How are you going to have a group of people disconnected from the infrastructure of the world? Will your own people want to live under that type of system that are going to be support? So allow me some skepticism. And you know what? I could be wrong. But show me rather than taking me as an enemy. In, in your lecture, uh, the Sahaba series, you did the... Um, actually, no, not, not the... Actually, yeah, the Sahaba series where you spoke about the Khulafat Rashidin. 
And when you spoke about uh, the assassination, the death of uh, Ali radiallahu an, uh, you mentioned the hadith in Musnad Ahmad, uh, the very well cited, commonly cited one about there will be after Nabuwa, there will be Khilafah Rashida and so forth. And then you actually said that you personally believe, you personally believe that we're at that latter stage. Do you recall the segment that I'm talking about? Are you still of that position? Yeah, it's a personal opinion. I could be wrong. It's a personal opinion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that, uh, this, this is uh, a tyrannical phase of the ummah. And we should emphasize practical change from within rather than through politics. I am still on that overall. Like, I feel it is more useful for the bulk of the scholars to make sure we preserve our iman rather than to get involved in abstract notions of a political caliphate. It's not going to happen. That's my personal view. And yes, I do believe that. And Allahu A'lam, are we going to have a political system before the Mahdi comes or not? Allahu A'lam. There's another issue. I believe in the coming of the Mahdi. I believe. It's in the hadith, you know. The Mahdi will unify. What we learn in the hadith is that one of the biggest civil wars in the Ummah will occur in the time of the Mahdi. Wouldn't it be between the three sons of the Khalifa? Yes. So a Khilaf is already established. Three sons of the of the Khalifa could mean three princes. You don't have to be technical. The technical Khilafa doesn't have to be referred to in this. Just like when the Prophet says wajib in the hadith, it doesn't mean the technical wajib. Okay. You know, that's reading in too much. Okay. okay. The, the hadith that uh, taking a bath is wajib on every Muslim. There's a hadith like this. Our scholars say when our Prophet is saying wajib, he's not indicating the wujub of the usul al-fiqh scholars, which is going to come in a hundred years. Right. What, what's he stressing? That the urgency? Yes. The importance. The yeah. Yes. Okay. So the point being, he says any three sons of the Khalifa doesn't have to mean, and by the way, this would go against your notion of one Khilafah anyway. It would also go against the notion of unified, because even if you were to say there were three actual Khalifas, well, they're having a civil war. But my interpretation is you're reading in too much with the term Khalifa. Three rulers, three princes, they're having a massive civil war. The Haram itself is involved. So I'm just positing, hear me okay. out. Yeah, Don't make the of me. No, no, never. If we're going to have... <laughs> civil wars all the way to the coming of the Mahdi. Mm. What does that indicate? I'll just leave it at that. And then allow me some skepticism and allow me to do what I think I'm good at. And I'm allowing you, bro, you don't have to follow my opinion. It's an ishtihadi position, man. I don't know. I don't know the future. But if I have a gut feeling or instinct and because of that and my reading of history and my knowledge of whatever Allah has blessed me with, I'm pursuing a different path than you, so be it. I am not criminalizing you considering you to be a deviant, even stopping you in your efforts. Do what you're doing, but I will problematize your problematization of me. That's where I'm going to say you're wasting my time and yours and you're creating controversy in the ummah. Um, another, from your reading and research um, uh, within the usul of this subject matter, um, do you personally hold the position uh, or, or would follow the position that a Khalifa would have to be Qurayshi of Qurayshi lineage? Uh so ideally, yes. Realistically, no. Meaning, the, the default is we want... So <laughs> when you don't have a Qurashi Khalifa, you go with what you have. So were the Ottomans not our Khulafa for 500 years? Are you going to hold that position? That's a position that, yes, you can theoretically hold, but you're going to destroy much of Islamic history. Uh, the Hadith is in Sahih Muslim. Um, I, uh, you know, as a Sunni Muslim, mainstream Sunni Muslim, I respect Bukhari and Muslim 
too much to open up this door that some of our revisionists have done. I don't believe we should do this. I believe it is safest to, unless there's a very specific reason, but anything in Bukhari and Muslim, I believe that we should accept it as a part of our heritage, generally speaking. Yes, certain hadith, again, like not getting technical, but you get my point here. Yes. Epistemologically, Bukhari and Muslim occupy a very high place. This hadith is in Sahih Muslim. That the khilaf is going to be from the Quraysh. And if only two people were alive, one of them Qurashi, he should be the Khalifa. Okay, we accept it. However, this is not a negation of a non-Qurashi caliphate. It is the recommendation that if you have the power, you should choose a Qurashi. And the Mahdi will be Qurashi, by the way. So again, one plus one. Civil wars all the way to the Mahdi. The Mahdi is going to come. He's from the Quraysh. You get my skepticism, and I'll leave it at that because it's a position that I hold uh, personally. I don't okay. preach it. During your conversations uh, with uh, Mufti Quran, rahimahullah, about the hudud in, in, and, the, and its implementation, or it's not it's, it's non-implementation in the context of nation states and so forth, did the conversation ever occur that in the absence of an imam or a sultan or a khalifa that is there even a need or a legitimacy to implement the hudud in the absence of islamic courts is there a need to implement the hudud were these conversations no i didn't speak to him specific, specifically about that but i know from my conversations with him that we were on the same wavelength and that wavelength is as muslim minorities in south africa and america and in, in canada and whatnot we are not calling for this but in muslim majority countries yeah. In Pakistan, you know, in, uh, you know, Malaysia or whatnot, definitely our political laws should be based upon our moral code. They're definitely. So how we view drinking, prostitution, public nudity, how can we not take our morality into account? Right. Mm -hmm. But must we implement in the nation state the exact same hudud? that are found in our classical books. That was my discussion with Mufti Karan. And by the way, with many scholars, but because they're alive. And you know, again, I'll say this, Dili, that wallahi, because of the rise of these fanatics, and Mufti Karan said this in the text to me, and I don't mind saying this. He said, because of the intransigence of the fundamentalist literalists, right? Much progress has been impeded because people are too scared to talk about this topic. Most ulama, who have studied usul al-fiqh, maqasid al-shara, understand that having some laws in conformity with Islam is better than having no laws. So if in Pakistan, let's say, we can get some laws passed, let's just say we can criminalize blasphemy, because in the end of the day, nobody's actually being executed even in Pakistan for blasphemy. Every time in Saudi Arabia that hasn't happened, bro, forget Pakistan. In Saudi Arabia, it has not happened. You get more political prisoners killed. Okay? Absolutely. Then you get so if it's not going to happen, can we think of a law that's actually going to be more effective and actually bring about a change than some utopic, romanticized thing that doesn't actually happen? You you see my point here, you know. Mm. I'm I'm open to the idea. That's all I'm saying. I'm not a Saudi or a Pakistani, but definitely from an usul al-fiqh paradigm, ulama in those lands should have the freedom to discuss these types of issues without the worry of being called a kafir or whatnot, which is what is happening. So the fear of fundamentalism, number one, uh, the fear from the fundamentalist, sorry. Number one, silences legitimate talk. And number two, opens the door for the all-out uh, all progressives who don't respect the tradition and who don't mind criminalizing mainstream Islam. 
And that's what Mufti Karan himself said to me uh, in the text message. And again, very clear that because of the, the intransigence of this new group of critics and whatnot, what has happened is legitimate internal Islamic reform has been silenced and you're opening the door for all complete yani, progressive kufr and bakwas to come out. Mm -hmm. I'm a critic of progressive Islam. I've always been a critic of progressive Islam. But because ignoramuses and some of them have knowledge and some of them don't criminalize genuine Islamic talk of hudud and whatnot, people are either silent or they open the door for the progressives. That's what has happened. Um, the final question I want to ask you from your reading of history and again the 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 usul and the uh, legal nuances and maxims pertaining to this subject matter is there an unequivocal position pertaining to rebelling against a muslim ruler oh not at all this is one of the myths of modern najdi salafism listen to my latest library chat which was very generically entitled some historical controversies in the first century of the hijra and I closed the comments section as well because I don't want to cause controversy. And I made the disclaimer as an advanced talk and whatnot. Uh, I'm asking you, have you listened to that one? I haven't, I haven't. Okay. Listen to that as soon as you're done with whenever you have time. It's okay. my latest library chat. Some historical controversies in the first century of the Hijra. Inshallah, after this lecture, for the rest of your life, I know you don't believe this, but anybody who believes that it is a mainstream uh, 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 understanding of Sunni Islam to always be quietistic and never rebel against the ruler that will be demolished. Okay, this is a construct of modern Najdism in order to facilitate their political acquiescence to their royal family. It is not Islamic. Yes, mainstream Sunnism overall has been quietist, but not obsequious. There's a big difference between the two, right? And quietism is not the same as bootlicking which is what the modern one does. Mm. And pacifism does not mean that you agree with the ruler or you don't criticize the ruler. Again, all of this is discussed in this lecture. And also, it is one opinion. We've, also, we've always had the other position where it is allowed to rebel against the ruler uh, for certain reasons. And Abu Hanifa was of this position. Uh, many of the Sahaba and Tabi'un in Yazid's time, the rebellion of Medina was done by Sahaba and sons of the Sahaba. Okay, The rebellion of Ibn al-Ash'ath, Anas ibn Malik supported it. Anas ibn Malik supported the rebellion against the Umayyad dynasty. Are you going to call him, a'udhu billah, non-Sunni? Again, Hussein, uh, the, the grandson of the Prophet, you're going to say he doesn't know the Sunnah of the Prophet, you know, uh, and I mentioned this, you know, even the pacifists like Ibn Umar and Ibn Abbas, their hearts were with Hussein against Yazid. Whereas the pacifists of our time, their hearts are with the Al-Fulans and the royal families and not with the masses. You cannot compare the two. So please stop deceiving people with this, uh, you know, uh, newfangled interpretation. We are not bootlickers to corrupt regimes. That's not Islam. Even if you agree to be pacifist, it is done to avoid more bloodshed, like Ibn Abbas and Ibn Umar said. And it is not done to support tyr tyrannical regimes. And listen to that lecture and you'll, you'll, listen, you'll hear my, my thoughts. It's historical. Well, you cannot. It's not even me. I'm telling you history. In the first century of the Hijrah, what happened? These are the Salaf. How can Salafis go against the Salaf? You'll listen to my lecture and you'll understand, inshallah, based upon Sheikh, that. Sheikh Yasser, Jazakumullah khairan for your time. I thoroughly enjoyed today's conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as well as much as I did. 
Um, if I said anything uh, to disrespect you or wrong or to hurt or offend you, please forgive me for the sake of Allah. And uh, I hope this is the first of many podcasts to have you soon in the future, inshallah. Inshallah, may Allah Azza wa Jal keep our hearts united. May Allah Azza wa Jal forgive me if I also went. Sometimes again, we're all human beings and sometimes irritation and frustration is is expressed. So uh, I don't remember the exact wordings I used uh, against some of my Muslim brethren. Mm-hmm. I ask Allah's forgiveness if they were too harsh because yes, Amen. I am human being and sometimes words and adjectives are used. I ask Allah to guide them and to guide me and to forgive them and to forgive me uh, and to keep our hearts uh, united and to guide all of us and to guide others through us. Our ultimate goal is the protection of this deen and the pleasure of Allah. We might have different paths to that goal, but inshallah ta'ala, those of us who are broad-minded enough to understand we should tolerate differences, we should work together for the greater good of the ummah. That's my main message uh, based upon the questions that you have given, inshallah. Jazakumullah. I mean to your du'as. Do you think there'll be any fiascos on the back of this podcast? There always are, but inshallah, nothing as bad as the previous one. So no, we can we can cope with those, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. Sheikh, take care. Keep us in your du'as. Assalamu alaikum. You as well. Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaikum Brothers and sisters, I pray that you all benefited from today's extensive podcast with Sheikh Yasser as much as I did. There was a lot of ground covered and I'm sure this podcast could have easily gone into the three, four hours. And inshallah, is we hope to have Sheikh Yasser uh, back on soon. Um, before I close today, please remember to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. Uh, this podcast will also be on Sheikh Yasser's channel, so please go over there to check out his other content, his library chats, and, and other very beneficial historical lectures. Um, subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. We're on Spotify, we're on all the major podcast platforms. And until next time, Salaamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullahi wa Barakatuh. Blood. Brothers Podcast, a five-headed production. production.